Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, but we are in a series, a season even, we're calling Ask Me About Jesus, where our goal is to talk about what we talk about when we talk about Jesus. Did you catch that? We're having conversations about how to have conversations about Jesus. And my job is to help equip you over these next weeks to know the reason for which you have hope. It says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer for the reason that you have hope. What I'm trying to do over these weeks is just kind of give you some handles that you're able to talk about with people that you're doing life with that might ask you about Jesus. And I want to look today really quick at one passage of Scripture. Now, I want to give you a disclaimer. Uh, some of you here today are going to absolutely love what I do. You are a nerd. You like notes. You like intellectual stuff, this one's for you. If it's not, if you're not that type of person, just do your best to lean in, take notes just to humor me, and next week we'll get back into the, into the deep feels, okay? So, but today we're going to do some stuff to build a framework about why we believe what we believe. I want to look at John chapter 9. We're going to start here and end here. This is a story about a man who was born blind, and the story goes that Jesus comes along and opens his eyes, and the religious rulers of the day already had a vendetta out against Jesus, and were trying to figure out ways to come against him, and now this eruption happens in the city of Jerusalem, where people are saying that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, and one of the evidences of that is that he healed this man who was born blind, and he opened his eyes. And so the religious rulers bring this man before them to interview him, and here's where we pick up. They still did not believe that this man had been born blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? So they bring the man's parents in. Is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's a big boy. He'll speak for himself. Nothing like your parents tossing you under the bus in that moment, hey? So they say, we don't know. We just know this is our son. He was born blind. It appears that he can see. That's all I can say about that. So his parents, they said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. That's why they deferred. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man, talking about Jesus, we know this man's a sinner. The blind man replied, look, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know a whole lot about him. All I know is this. I was blind, and now I see. I can't explain much else. All I know, and this is what I'll tell you, I've been saying it the whole time, I was blind, and now I see. This man, when pushed by skeptics, had to give an answer, and at the end of the day, he said, I was blind, but now I see. He had to try to explain the inexplicable. Have you ever felt like you were in that position as a believer where somebody came to you and they asked you to, hey, why do you believe what you believe? And you, how do you explain to a skeptic 
Jesus, where do you start? What do you say? Maybe someone's come to you. Maybe you can identify with this. You've had somebody come to you antagonistically. And they come almost pro, like to provoke you. And they say, oh, nice shirt. Ask me about Jesus. You know what? Jesus didn't even exist. He was fabricated by the man just to keep people bound up and to control people. Because that's what all religion is. It's man-made to control and oppress. You heard that one? Or maybe, how do you answer that? Or maybe you have somebody that comes to you sincerely. And we have a lot of people in our lives like that. That they have legitimate questions as to why you believe what you believe. What do you say to somebody? Okay, nice shirt. Tell me about them. Why do you believe what you believe? How do you explain to a skeptic why you have hope in Jesus? What do you say? Today, I want to just take a few minutes and I want to give you some building blocks and some framework as to why we believe in Jesus and to give you some handles to begin to have that conversation. I want to start with some good news. And here, here's my premise. Here's really what I want you to, to know today. Some good news for the believer among skeptics. And the first is this. There is sound logic for the Christian position. The first thing I want to impress upon you, and I hope you're going to feel this before, before you leave today, is that there are good reasons that we believe as Christians what we believe. Now, you might have noticed this in society, you might have seen this on TV, or just felt this, but I don't know about you, but oftentimes when you think about the Christian perspective and the Christian position on existence, oftentimes Christians are typecast, not as the intelligent person in the room, but as the toothless dummy that hasn't really thought through anything. Have you noticed this? Like if there, was a, if there was a debate being broadcast on CNN, you would assume that you would have on the atheistic side some guy in a tweed jacket with one of those hats and a pipe with a PhD from Harvard and, and Esquire at the end of his name. And then on the other side, debating for the Christians, you would have some dude missing a tooth with no shirt from Beaver Creek, Indiana. Right? <laughs> Who will tell you about Jesus? Right? And there is this sort of misconception that has been built and perpetuated in society that says, you know, agnostics and atheists have the intellectual position on, on, on why things are the way they are and how they explain existence. And people of faith are superficial, maybe even a little dumb. Have you noticed that? I want to give you just an encouragement today to tell you that there is sound logic and good reasons and that it is false to say that Christianity or a theistic or deistic worldview is silly or stupid. And you need to know, as a Christian, you are part of a fraternity that includes some of the most brilliant minds in human history, like Sir Francis Bacon and Copernicus and Johannes Kepler and Galileo and Rene Descartes and Blaise Pascal and Albert Einstein. All of these people concluded, oh, there is a God. So you are not in bad company. And Christians have been at the leading edge up until the last hundred years or so, the leading edge of the development of Western society. Democracy was our idea. Hospitals was our idea. University, that was our idea. Christians have always been on the leading edge of thought. And it is a false assessment to say that you have a dumb position as a Christian. Second thing you need to know. There is a way to have an honest, intelligent, and impactful conversation about Jesus with a willing skeptic. 
There are some people in your lives who are skeptical and they're antagonistic and they aren't going to have a fair conversation. But there is a way with somebody who is open to dialogue, there is a way to actually have a fair conversation. And one thing you need to be encouraged of is this, that in the last 40 years, as secular society has grown, a silver lining in that is this, that there is more openness to talk about the grand scheme of things and existence and a God and spiritual things. People are more open to that right now than they have been in a very long time. And so we have a great opportunity to talk about these things. And the third thing is this. Most people you encounter have never thought critically about their own beliefs and are closer to being able... Oh, my mom missed the proofread there. Do you know my mom still checks my homework? She does. Yeah, it's, it's good. I dump it all in my notes and I send it off to her and she says, fix that, and we missed this one. Here's what I'm trying to say. Most people you encounter have never really thought critically about their own beliefs and are much closer to being able to be moved forward in believing in God than you might think. It's actually not as difficult to systematically and sequentially lead someone in steps towards coming to be a believer in God and more specifically in Jesus Christ. And I want to take a few minutes today to build for you the reasons why we believe what we believe. Now, who's excited about that? Okay, I can work with, I can work with 40% of the crowd. It's good. We can do this. I want to show you where to start in this conversation. So if I were to come up to you and, and say, how do you explain your faith and where do you start? If we were in 1985, your starting point would probably be different than it needs to be today. In 1985 in the West, most people were theists. Most people had a sense of a moral absolute. Most people believed that truth was absolute. But we don't live in that society today. In 1985, if I was your pastor, which I was two years old in 1985, but if I was your pastor, I would have said, here's how you can share your faith with people. And this was the common way to do it. It was called the four spiritual laws. Anybody been in church long enough to remember that? Bill Bright and Billy Graham, they used to use these things. But basically, you would go up to somebody and say, here's what you need to know. God loves you and created you to know him personally. Men are sinful and separated from God, so we can't know him personally or experience the life that only comes from him. But here's our solution. Jesus Christ is God's provision for the problem of man's sin and separation from God. And here's what you need to do with that. We have to individually receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and be reconciled with God through him. Now, is this true? Yes, it is. And that's every bit as true today as it was in 1985. However, we have to start one step back. A lot of people in our lives and a lot of skeptics around us first and foremost, have to be convinced on this question, that there even is a God, and that he's good, and that he loves you, that the conversation for us has to actually take a step back. How many of you remember 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you could go up to somebody and say, well, the Bible says such and such and such, and you should believe. Is that not what we did? Well, now you'll go to somebody and say, well, what's the Bible? Why don't you quote the Koran or Stephen Hawking? Like, what are, you, what, what are you talking about the Bible? People have got to have the conversation about God first. And you have to build a framework before we move forward talking about our Christian faith. Does that make sense? So in the next several weeks, we're really going to zoom in on this. This is the gospel. And we're going to zoom in and really show you like the, the central, the meat of the gospel. And I really believe God's going to stir our hearts and give us fresh revelation 
But before we do that, I felt it was really important that I take a few minutes and just show you the logic and the reason we believe what we believe. And so if you're going to explain the faith to somebody in the 21st century, here's what I'd encourage you to think about. It's basically, I have three steps that I want you to consider in, in dialoguing with people and helping people understand why you believe what you believe. Here's what we're going to try to get them to do. We want them to run up the ramp of reason. We want them to what? Run the? Yes, we're going to do this together, y'all. We're just going to. We're going to run the ramp of reason. We're going to reveal the leap of faith. And then we're going to recite our experience. We want to help them run the ramp of reason. We're going to systematically and sequentially take them through the steps as to the logic or the reason behind what we believe. Then we're going to show them that we all are actually taking a leap of faith. What are you doing with your faith leap? I'm doing Jesus. And then ultimately, we end with telling, here's what happened after I put my faith in Jesus. This is really the starting point of the dialogue we have with people when we get talking about Jesus. So I want to take you through this. Now let's first talk about the ramp of reason or steps toward faith. If someone comes to you and says, okay, tell me about Jesus, here's where you want to start. You want to start with, let me tell you about the conclusions I've drawn, about my life, about the world, about Jesus, but here's where I need to start with you. I believe there is a God and I have my reasons. I have my reasons and they look like this. Now, if I were to take these steps, I want to kind of highlight for you the steps or the ramp of reason, I don't have a ramp, I only had steps, so bear with me, but they're basically doing the same thing. They're getting us from here to here, correct? So I want to highlight for you the ramp of reason. I want to show you the steps toward leading someone in why we believe what we believe. And the first starting point is this. Here's where we're going to start. The first thing we're going to try to do is get common ground. Oftentimes, when you approach somebody about things of faith and you talk to them about why we believe what we believe, there is an assumption in a lot of agnostics and especially in a lot of atheists that they have thought through intellectually their belief system, but you as a believer are, haven't really thought it through and it's kind of this subjective experience. And what we want to do is we want to get common ground to where they take you seriously and you take them seriously and they look at you and say, okay, you've given this some thought and I need to be open and honest with you. So here's the first thing. The, the common ground we're looking for, first and foremost, is we need this person to realize that our conclusions, all of us, are drawn from a combination of intellectual, experiential, and social reasons, and we have to confront myopic, unfair conclusions. You actually have to confront the common thing that says, oh, you Christians just believe that because you're superficial, or you're not objective, or maybe it's because you grew up in a Christian home. Has anybody ever heard that? You're just a Christian because you grew up in that context. Well, if come to our church, half of you are the first Christian in your whole family, so that's a crappy argument, but you will face that a lot. You'll face this like, your perspective is subjective and my perspective is objective. And what you want to do is get common ground where you both can agree, none of us have all the answers, and both of us are a product of our history, our insights, and our experiences, and we're coming at this from the same place, we're just drawing different conclusions. See, two people can have the same experience and draw different conclusions about God. But they're both subjective in that these were your conclusions. Second step you want to do, though, and this is really where you want to lead, 
is you want people to move from taking your position seriously as you take theirs seriously, and then you want them to take a step towards realizing that they themselves are a person of faith. Whether they would say it or not, the first step is that you want to get agreement in this, that every person has a belief system. Every person on planet Earth believes in something and are in faith assuming things that they cannot know for certain are true or not true. Every one of us suspend our belief and every one of us have areas of faith that we just choose to believe. Am I right? And this is what we want to help our friends understand, that all opinions about God, whether he is or isn't real, are inherently faith positions. Sometimes you might have talked to somebody and they're like, okay, Brent, I know you're a Christian, but I don't believe in God. I'm not a person of faith. I believe in science. Yeah, that's the most common one. I'm not a person of faith. I believe in science. The irony is they don't even hear that that itself is a faith statement. I don't have faith. I believe. Do you hear it? My friend Mark, uh, Mark Clark, he wrote a great book a few years ago called The Problem of God. It's a, it's a book on Christian apologetics, which is what we're doing this morning. And if this stuff interests you, there's so much good stuff out there. Tim Keller's Reason for God, Problem of God, Is Atheism Dead by Eric Metaxas? Really good. Lots of good stuff if this kind of geeks you out and nerds you out. If it doesn't, hang with me. I'm going to give you like the, the easy thing to do here in a second. But Mark Clark said this. I thought this is perfect. Isn't faith blind belief? Isn't it something religious people have versus the rest of humanity, say atheists or agnostics, who believe in facts and evidence? Not at all. Everyone, even the most convinced atheist, has a faith position. Everyone believes in something, makes assumptions about reality that can't be proven even through science. One might say, I don't believe in God. I follow where the science and history lead us, objectively, without a predetermined agenda. I don't have faith in anything. Such a person is not being honest with himself. Everything we believe is filtered through a grid or a worldview that has been adopted over time, constructed from a myriad of variables, where and when we were born, our family, our education, media, etc. We are frequently unaware of these presuppositions, but we, we must see that all of them, to a certain degree, are faith-based conclusions, rather than beliefs adopted through empirical proof. Skepticism is itself a set of narrow-minded and dogmatic beliefs, a commitment to a lifestyle of consistent doubt. Are you seeing what he's saying? In choosing not to commit to any one belief about spiritual or ultimate things, skeptics feel they are being open-minded but miss the inherent irony that to not commit to one set of beliefs about spiritual matters is itself a choice to commit to a set of beliefs about spiritual matters. The problem is that people often lack the self-awareness to recognize this contradiction. And that's what he's trying, that's what I'm trying to say here, is you, you, the first step is to get somebody to take seriously the fact that they are a person of faith, and whether they've thought about it or not, or decided to make a decision and say, I believe in this, or they say, I don't know what I believe, that is still a faith position. And you're trying to have a fair faith-based conversation. That's, what, that's the second step. Step number three 
is that we need to help them realize. So the first step is we need them to realize they, they have a faith position. The second step is they need to realize that their faith position is just as robust as ours is. That they are operating in just as much faith as we are as believers. To conclude that there is no God and to act as though there is no God is just as bold of a faith life as mine is to believe there is a God. And this is where we need to help people move forward. Help them realize that it takes just as much faith to disbelieve in God as it does to believe him. And we have to push the argument forward that they need to see that the, this, this conversation about faith has to cut both ways. And for them to not believe in God is a great leap of faith. It is a massive leap of faith. Oftentimes you will get different arguments pushed back on why someone can't believe in God. Uh, the first most common one is evil and suffering. People will often say, I can't believe in a great and all-powerful and good God and still see all the pain and suffering in the world. How can there be a good God and so much pain and suffering? Have you heard that one before? Have you felt that one before? We all have. But here's the thing you've got to understand. This argument actually cuts the very limb that an atheist is sitting on off. Because here's the thing. First and foremost, just objectively, evil and suffering doesn't disprove the existence of God. It's, it just doesn't. But intrinsically, think about this. It has been, it has been uh, a great apologetic argument to point out the very fact, like C.S. Lewis talks about that, the very fact that you and I have a sense of right and wrong. And that you have a sense that it's wrong that children die. And it's wrong, apartheid is wrong. And holocausts are wrong. And murder is wrong. The very fact that human beings have a sense of justice and morality imprinted in their soul is a great evidence that there's some higher power establishing a moral standard. And so this, this argument has to cut both ways. Another thing about the argument of evil and suffering, you ever thought about this? A lot of the time people will say, I can't believe in a God who is all-powerful and all-good and continues to let evil and suffering happen. Well, here's the problem with that argument. If you want a God who is all-powerful and all-good, that God probably has reasons for things that you can't understand. And oftentimes we want it both ways. I want a God who is all-powerful and all-good, and I totally agree and sign off with all the reasons he does what he does, which is to deduce God into not a God at all. Does that make sense? Like, ah, oh, dude, you're losing me. Let, me. let me read it like I wrote it. If you have a God big enough and powerful enough to be mad at for the existence of evil and suffering, you will have a God big enough and powerful enough to have reasons and purposes for evil and suffering that you can't understand. You can't have it both ways. And so evil and suffering doesn't prove or disprove God. In fact, I think it even points to God. Number two, you'll often hear evil perpetuated by religion, like Hitchens, the, the great atheist. He loves this one, that I can't believe in God because people who believe in God have created some of the greatest atrocities in human history. And he's not entirely wrong. Human beings, in the name of God, have done and continue to do horrific things. And no faith group is exempt from that. I mean, you look at the Buddhists, uh, that was, it was actually Buddhism and Shintoism that, that kind of led to the militarism of the Japanese in World War II. It was, the, it was that ideology. Uh, you look at the Crusades for Christians, 
It's a dark time in our history. You look at Islamic terrorism even today. I mean, we're, we're watching that on the news right now. But this doesn't prove whether there's a God or there's no God. All that proves is human beings are dark and broken, which is an, another opportunity to talk about the gospel. But the thing you want to push back on an on a atheist or a secular person when they make that argument is, well, you are also forgetting that agnostics, atheists, and secular people have actually caused some of the greatest atrocities of the last 300 years. I mean, you, you can talk about Soviet Russia, and you can talk anyway. It doesn't prove or disprove there's a God. Third argument is this. You'll just hear this. This is where it'll all boil down to. Look, I know you say you believe in God, but you can't prove there's a God. What do you say to that? You can't prove there isn't. Exactly. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to just get equality in these arguments. To say, like, you're a faith person. It is a great statement of your faith to say there is no God. How do you know? And you are taking great leaps of trust in your own ability to deduce all of existence into the fact that you don't think there's a God. You're banking a lot on that opinion. And so the second step is to kind of get this honesty that we are both people of faith, and the question is, is your faith more reasonable than mine? And that's the third step. The third step on the ramp of reason is to get somebody to this top point that basically acknowledges that all of us are people who have areas in our lives and in our mind that we have to just operate in faith. Every one of us has a leap of faith in our lives that we have to take. The question is, is your leap of faith actually bigger than mine as a Christian? Is your leap of faith as an agnostic and as an atheist suspending more uh, just belief and blind trust than mine is as a Christian? That's ultimately where we want to lead people. I'll say it like this. We want to help people realize that it actually takes a larger leap of faith to believe there is no God than, there, than it does to believe there is God. There is God that the body of evidence in the world actually, if you're taking it seriously, points more to a designer and a creator than it does to just some cosmic accident. And so there's a few things you can say about it. I don't want to spend a ton of time here. Again, there's great resources out there. There's a few things you can say that are evidences for a creator and why somebody who thinks that we are just some cosmic accident out of, you know, some multiverse scenario that just happened to produce this one inhabitable place in time, here's what you, you would say to that. There's first the problem of origin. I don't care whether you believe in the multiverse. I don't care whether you believe in like Prometheus, that we're somehow seeded by some ancient alien intelligence, or you believe that it's evolution and it all just kind of happened out of some cosmic goop. Whatever your argument is, it doesn't solve the great problem, and that is this. What came before nothing? It doesn't matter how, God, <laughs> nothing. Well, let me say it like this, okay. How, how what, what be, where did things begin? And what began things? That's the big question that we have to answer. And, and the thing you want to push back to an atheist is how do you answer the problem of nothing becoming something? And how, what do you deal with whatever's outside of space and time? Like, how do you wrap your head around that? Another great argument is the fine-tuned universe. And this is, I mean, nerds, go home and Google 
you know, Christian apologetics fine-tuned universe and you will just have a heyday when you look in at all the math and science and physics and chemistry that basically makes your head just bend over and goes When you look at just how fine-tuned all of the universe is so that we here on planet Earth can have life, I mean, the math of that is like, in one of those books, uh, Is Atheism Dead? It's just like zero, 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 zero to the, to the power of infinity. Like, like, it's just inexplicably unlikely that we would be in the one universe in the multiverse that could house life. The odds are just not, not, not good in the favor of that. Let me say it like this. None of you would look at this iPad and say, wow, I'm so glad that in the multiverse that somehow through some cosmic chance this great piece of technology and equipment just formed itself with all the software and operating system and technology and hardware to function so that we could use it here in this moment, in this place and time. You'd say, no, somebody designed that and created that. And the same goes for the world that we live in. It speaks to a designer. And the the faith that it takes to believe that we're just here by accident is substantially more than just resigning to the fact that, like, yeah, it looks like when I look at the world and I look at the creation, I look at the cardiovascular system inside of me and the nervous system and family and joy and all these things, just seems like somebody had an idea about it. Just sort of points to that. Alvin Plantinga, I love this, his, his little analogy. He said, imagine a man dealing himself 20 straight hands of four aces in the same game of poker. As his companions reach for their six shooters, the poker player says, hey, hey, whoa, I know it looks suspicious, but what if, just go with me, what if there is an infinite succession of universes so that for any possible distribution of poker hands, there is one universe in which the possibility is realized. We just happen to find ourselves in one where I always deal myself four aces without cheating. Right? What would, the, what would the, the players say? Well, this argument will have no effect on the other poker players. It is technically possible that the man just happened to deal himself 20 straight hands of four aces, though you could not prove he had cheated, it would be unreasonable to conclude that he hadn't. Why? Because the odds of that are extremely low. He probably cheated. You see, what he's, you see the point he's trying to make? The odds of all of the universe being some cosmic accident are extremely low. It points to a creator. Now, the antagonist would say, this doesn't prove that there's a God. No, they're correct. It doesn't. But it sure points towards one, doesn't it? It sure points in that direction. A couple other things that, that point towards uh, the existence of a creator is the idea of beauty and magnificent. Like it says in Psalms, like the creation, you know, the creation sings. It, it speaks. It declares the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Have you ever been in a place in nature where it just sort of grabbed your heart and there was this sort of transcendent wow? What is that? Is it, is it just luck? Is it just coincidence? Or is there something behind it trying to get us to see what is greater, to see transcendence? The idea of significance and meaning. And then, of course, human rights and morality, which I touched on that. But these are all reasons why this, it seems as though our world points towards having a designer 
and a creator behind it. But ultimately, none of these actually prove there is a God. The only reason you explain these things is to try to flip it back on a person and say, why do you believe what you believe? And what evidence do you have to support your leap of faith? Because here's some of the reasons why I believe it is logical for me to have a leap of faith to believe there is a God. Does that make sense? You tracking? I'm not convinced. Are you with me? All right, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the corner here. I, I'm getting a little, little lost in the details, but I want, I want to give this to you because I think it's important. So we need to help people realize it actually takes a larger leap of faith to believe there is no God than to believe there is a God. Now, the final step ultimately in the rampant reason is to get people to take that belief and to say, okay, or just acknowledge that I, I have a belief that I'm operating in and that, okay, why do I believe what I believe? Now, here's the moment for us where we really, like, we zoom in on Christ. You want to get a person to at least acknowledge you have faith and you, whether you like to admit it or not, you are operating in some area of the unknown. And the question is, what do you do with your, the gaps that you can't explain in this world? And what do you do with your existence? And what do you do with the big questions? And this is the moment where you start to point to Jesus. And you say, for me, I'm trusting and banking everything on the person of Jesus. Jesus is how I fill in the gaps. Oh, I thought there'd be an amen there. Amen. Jesus is how I fill in the gaps. So this is, this is ultimately where we want to move people to. Let me tell you, I have my reasons, but let me tell you about the decision I've made. I realized I had to make a faith decision. I was intentional about it, and I chose to put my trust and my faith in the man, Jesus Christ. I've put my faith in him. And you reveal, here's what I've done with my leap of faith. Does that make sense? You're trying to help people understand. It, it's been deliberate. I, I deliberately choose to follow Jesus. I don't simply believe there's a God, but I actually put my faith in the person, Jesus. And here's, here's some reasons why. And I don't have time to break this down too much. If you want to go back on our YouTube channel and look up Easter 2023, I actually did an exhaustive case for Christ kind of thing. Uh, but here's some reasons. I believe in what others have said about him. There is historical, historical case and testimony about Jesus, not, not just from Christians, from Jews, from the Romans. They all put Jesus as, of Nazareth as someone who lived and was executed back in the, in the first century in Israel. I remember I was actually in Israel back in March, and I asked my tour guide. She was a secular Jew, didn't really practice her Jewish faith. She wasn't a Christian. And I asked her, I said, where I come from, a lot of people think that Jesus didn't even exist. They think he's made up or he's some fiction person. I said, do you, do you believe that Jesus existed? And she looked at me like, are you an idiot? She, was, what is, she actually said, and, and Israelis are, are, are blunt people. She goes, that's a dumb question. Because of course Jesus existed. He, he, he's from that town. Like, we know where he grew up. We know where the landmarks are. Like, it's a historical fact that Jesus existed. That's not what we're arguing about. The question you have to answer is, do you believe he is who he says he is, and do you believe that he rose from the dead? But the question about the historicity of Jesus, of course he existed. And I believe that. That matters to me. And I believe the biblical testimony of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're eyewitnesses of, the, of what Jesus did and what he said. And I believe the testimony of the church. Ultimately, though, I believe what Jesus said. I believe what he said about himself. He said he's God. He didn't say, I came to just give you some advice to help you do life better. He didn't say, I came to help you do you. He said, I am God. Repent, turn to me, the kingdom's at hand. 
And one of the points C.S. Lewis makes, I love this point. He says, you know, nobody, you can't, you can't take Jesus seriously and conclude he's just a good man or a great moral teacher. Nobody says the types of things Jesus said and is just a good man. They're either a lunatic, a liar, or they are who they say they are. But you have to take him seriously, and I, and I do. I, I take his words seriously about existence. You know, I one, th- I one time had a conversation with my cousin who's an agnostic. We have great conversations. He's, very, he's an honest and open agnostic, and we, ha- we, ba- we have back and forth all the time. And one time he said, okay, Brent, how do you know that somebody somewhere 2,000 years ago didn't just go on some writing retreat and sit down and write out all the stuff about Jesus? How do you know that? And I said, well... I have reasons historically, and there's reasons about like, why we believe the Bible's trustworthy and all that, and I can give you some of that, but let me just tell you this. I said, if that were true, and some brilliant mind stepped aside and wrote all that stuff, can you help me find them, because I'm going to worship them? Because whoever said what Jesus said has words that lead to life. And the teaching and the proclamation and the revelation that Jesus brought absolutely transforms everything. It is truth. And when you apply it to your life, it actually changes you and sets you free. And I believe his word. I believe why he came. I believe what he said about me, that he came to seek and save the lost, and I am one of those. And I believe he came to destroy the devil and his works. I believe he came for lost sheep like me as a good shepherd to come and give his life as ransom so that I could live forever and ever. Amen? And ultimately, I believe in Jesus and what he did. I believe Easter is the single most important event in human history, in the history of the universe. I believe it's true, and I have my reasons. And if you, again, if you want to go into the deep dive of that, I'd encourage you to go back online. So ultimately, what do you do with this? Some of you have been sitting here saying, this is very interesting. And others of you are like, look, man, if you expect me to sit my friend down and give him what you just spent the last 25 minutes on, like, forget it. I'll leave that to the nerds. Right? You're just like, I can't, I can't do that. Here's the good news. I wanted to spend a few minutes on that more than anything to just give you some, like, a strengthening to say, look, if you want to do the deep dive intellectually, there is some incredible thought given to why we believe what we believe, and it will satisfy the most brilliant minds, and I believe is the best ideas in the marketplace of ideas. However, you don't have to be an apologist or a physicist or a philosopher to be an effective evangelist. And here's why. Ultimately, the most powerful apologetic is not your ability to explain proofs as to why you think there's a God, and it's not your ability to, you know, to, to explain why everybody's got a faith position or a worldview. The most powerful proof that Jesus is who he says he is is your story of what happened after you encountered him. The most powerful apologetic and the most powerful thing that we have to share about Jesus is what happened when he found us. Like, this is, this is what happens in John 9. This is, where, this is really where I want to land the plane. Get these skeptics all around. Even Buddy's parents don't believe. And they're asking him, well, what do you think about this Jesus? Explain yourself. Explain yourself. And the guy's like, look, there are smarter people than me that I'm sure have things to say about this Jesus. Here's what I can tell you. I was blind. 
Now I see. I was living my life blind as a bat every day of my life, and then this one day, this man Jesus comes along and opens my eyes, and my world has changed. And this ultimately is all you have to do as a believer of Jesus. Your job is to not have scientific data. You don't need to pull out your notebook and push up your glasses and say, Here, here's why you can believe. Like, it's interesting, and there's some great resources out there, but you know what God wants you to do? He wants you to testify as to the way that the king is changing your life. And that's all you have to do. It is the most powerful... <laughs> Hear me. The most powerful apologetic the most powerful explanation and the most powerful evidence for the existence and lordship of Jesus is your testimony and your changed life. Nobody can argue with that. And especially when there's real transformation happen. Like, I love how it said they couldn't, they couldn't put this guy away. Like, he's like, okay, he was actually blind and now he's not. That's a problem for us to explain. And like, we have a church full of those problems. I met just last week at West Side. I met, a, I met a girl named Holly. She came to CR a year ago. She showed me a picture of her in the hospital. Uh, she, had, she had an episode addicted to methamphetamine. Her face was swollen. She had like sores all over her. She looked like a train wreck. And she says, she says this is what I looked like a year ago. And then Jesus found me. And I'm looking at this girl who is a completely new creation. That says Jesus is Lord. And it's hard to argue with that. So like, I don't, and she couldn't, she couldn't tell you all this stuff, but I'll tell you what, her testimony is so powerful. And you don't, listen, your testimony doesn't have to be, I was addicted to meth and I was in jail and I died and Jesus resuscitated me and I was in the seventh heaven. Like we have this kind of thing in church where it's like, it's gotta be the gnarliest story ever in order for God to get glory. I don't think so. The more I think about my story, like, by God's grace, he gave me believing parents who told me about him at six years old, and he, he ripped into my heart, a, a heart, took a heart of stone, and he's been creating a heart of flesh, and every day of my life, I look back over the decades, and I see the hand of God's goodness and grace in every season. I've never wondered why I'm here. I've never really dealt with extended loneliness. I've never wondered about meaning or my purpose. He's fulfilled me in ways that I could not imagine life otherwise without him. And this is what we have to do. This is the only thing that we need to do. And I'm going to get Sandra to come back and play the piano and let you know that I'm done. <laughs> but, <laughs> hey, Sandra. Let me tell you about the experience I've had. Here's ultimately where you want to land it. I'm changed. Jesus has changed my life. And that's all you need to really be faithful to, is to be faithful to say, look, I'm a work in progress. I, I like how rough around the edges the blind guy was. Like, he was a brand new believer. He's like, look, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Actually, go home and read it. At one point, he starts talking smack back to the religious leaders. He's like, what, all these questions, do you want to be his disciple too? And they get all mad at him. He's like, you're still rough around the edges, and you're still rough around the edges. I'm still rough around the edges, but I'm changing. And he's changing me. And there's evidence of the work of Jesus in my life. And that is ultimately what we're after. Your, your testimony is just this. Look, because of Jesus, I'm changing. I was blind, now I see. I was an addict, and now I'm getting free. I was guilty, and now I'm forgiven. I was dead, and he's bringing me to life. 
This is our job as believers, to testify to the goodness and power of God in our lives. Here, here, here's what I would say to you as an encouragement. Like if, if you're a mom and a dad and you want your kids to get Jesus, here's the number one thing you can do is let Jesus get more of you. Because through that, they'll watch. They'll watch the evidence and the transformation in your own life. And that becomes convincing. It's like, hey, I didn't understand it, but I watched my dad walk the walk of faith. And now it's finally clicking for me. I, I get it. Maybe you're a wife of an unbelieving husband or a husband of an unbelieving wife. Do you know the Bible says don't even try to argue your spouse into the kingdom? No one had their arm twisted into belief. What do you do? tells us, actually, this is First Peter, is like, like, give yourself fully to Jesus and trust that through you and through your transformation, that's what speaks to your spouse. And be faithful to Jesus. Maybe you're a kid and, and, and you're the first person in your whole family to believe in Jesus. We have a lot of those in our youth group right now. A lot of first believers in a whole family. Do you know what the strategy for reaching your family is, first and foremost? Like, it's, it's to allow Jesus to transform your life and be faithful to say, Jesus is changing me. And that's all you have to do, is to be an ambassador and to be a representative. To say, hey, because of Jesus, I was blind, now I see. I was dead, now I was alive. Can I tell you, if you put your faith in Jesus, he'll change you too. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for you. Father, we thank you today that you are still in the business of changing lives. We thank you that you're still opening blind eyes. God, I pray right now, here's my simple prayer. I pray right now over my brothers and sisters for grace to testify to your goodness and your mercy and your power in our lives. Father, would you help us to, would you just remove the burden of like needing to be apologists or explain things that are inexplicable? And would you just make us confident and convinced that people need to hear the good news that Jesus saves? And the best thing that they can hear out of me is because of Jesus, I was dead, now I'm alive. I was lost, now I'm found. I'm blind, now I see. Would you help us, God, be quick to tell our story? We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen.